1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan LeBell at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Frank B. Wilderson III, professor and chair of African American Studies, as well as a professor in the Culture and Theory PhD program at the University of California, Irvine. He spent five and a half years in South Africa, where he was one of two Americans to hold elected office in the African National Congress during apartheid. He's received prestigious awards for both his fiction and nonfiction. Today, we'll be discussing his most recent book, Afro-Pessimism, published by Liveright, a division of W.W. Norton, in 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Frank.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here, Susan.
1: So Afro-Pessimism is an ambitious work that it combines interrogating critical theory and, and personal memoir. Uh, You describe your earlier assumption that anti-Black racism was analogous to the plight of the Palestinians or Native Americans or the working class. But this book is about reaching a very different conclusion about the suffering of Black people as essentially different, um, and you actually don't foresee a resolution. And and before we unpack what it means to be an Afro-pessimist, Can we start with how you came to write this book? I mean, you are using family memoir, and I'm wondering why you chose that narrative style and how it ultimately impacted the substance of the argument.
0: Yes. Well, I I think that I have two professional kind of training degrees, and one is in critical theory from the rhetoric department at UC Berkeley. But long before that, I had a master's in fine arts from uh, Columbia University in in fiction writing. So I've been writing uh, vignettes and short stories and incompleted novels based loosely or greatly on things that I've experienced and family issues, um, political issues that are dear to my heart for a long time. I began my PhD work in 1997 after I got back from South Africa. And at some point along the way, I had written, as many of your listeners know, two books already. One was called Incognito, which was a pure kind of in the architecture of the book, a kind of memoir that uh, oscillated chapters between uh, my life growing up in the all-white neighborhood in Minneapolis, Minnesota, to my time in South Africa. And I wrote Red, White, and Black Cinema and the Structure of U.S. Antagonism, which uh, was a book in which I tried to, at a kind of uh, macro level, explain the stakes and interventions of Afro-pessimism and use uh, film theory and film analysis uh, to to do that. Uh, What happened with this book is in 2017, uh, the New Press and Verso Press called me separately and asked um, for something. It, it was, we, were, we were talking it through whatever they wanted. Um, I was happy to be called. And it turned out to be like something like a book of political essays, but it would have to be aimed at a reader who was not a graduate student. Um, so, in other words, someone who was like a junior in college without a thesaurus, thesaurus available to them. And I somehow began to think back to work I had done when I was on a sabbatical year in Germany in which uh, I had been writing a monograph on the human slash black divide to argue theoretically that people in the humanities where I'm situated in particular, but I would also say throughout the social sciences as well, use the word human as though the words and the letters that that form the signifier and the signified that make a sign, as though the sign is actually indexical of something in the world. And we know from semiotics that words relate to other words, not to something in the world. And so what became interesting to me were two things that I was seeing in the Bay Area in the 1990s. One in political organizations that are, say, multicultural, multiracial coalitions, it is impossible to think comprehensively about black suffering. That every time that that happens, the suffering of black people as a as a structure has to undergo some form of structural adjustment, so that it looks like the suffering of undocumented immigrants, so, so that it looks like the suffering of the working class, and it may have these attributes. In important ways, but we were saying there's something essential to Black suffering that cannot be reconciled with other people's suffering. That's number one. Number two is the fact that this word human, just like the word worker uh, we see from Marxist studies, or the word woman that we see from uh, mainly psychoanalytic uh, oriented gender studies, are actually not words that point to things in the world. They're words that point to concepts. And so in order for a concept to be coherent, at the end of the day, it has two attributes. One are what we would call as kind of collateral positive attributes. So if you take the word cat, C-A-T, it has attributes that are similar to a lynx and to a mountain lion and similar to a tiger. And so those are the collateral kind of attributes that go into making conceptually coherent this word C-A-T. But at the end of the day, the word, the thing that makes C-A-T absolutely coherent is D-O-G, it's exact opposite. And so once you liberate words from things, then you find their meaning, their bedrock meaning in what it is not. And I would argue, we have argued, that the word human has not been interrogated in this way. And that its bedrock opposite is the slave, and that the slave, for the past at least thirteen hundred years, is quintessentially black.
1: And you describe that blackness as a form of of social death. Um, and, and this is a book that it is it is what it says. Um, it it doesn't have a, a bright light at the end. Um, Can you unpack a little bit more about what it is about blackness that becomes the opposite of humanness or why humanness requires blackness to exist?
0: Yes, this is uh, Afro-pessimism as a lens. It's borrowing uh, from the massive, massive corrective on slave studies that Orlando Patterson produced in 1982 out of Harvard. Uh, Orlando Patterson produced a book called Slavery and Social Death, in which he basically said, there's an entire archive of slave studies on the shelf over there. And I, Orlando Patterson, am here to tell you that there's something um, wrong in the thinking of that archive. And what's wrong in the thinking of that archive is that they have putatively, these books on the shelf have putatively announced themselves as books that describe slavery as a relation. And what they have done instead is a, very, is a thing that is, that is the besetting hobble of, of Anglo-American pedagogy, which is the besetting hobble of Anglo-American pedagogy, is empiricism and observation. And so at the end of the day, what he's arguing is two points. But the first point is that all these other books have actually said, we are going to describe slavery as a relation. And What they end up doing is giving you reportage on slavery as an experience. People picked cotton. They lived in the 19th century, below the Mason-Dixon line. They were in shackles. And that's not, you know, any good Marxist would know that's not how you, you don't describe Marxism or capitalism, rather. You don't describe capitalism. Right. listing events on the factory floor. So then we have to figure out what is slavery? If you could be eating bonbons on a divan, if you could be a civil servant wearing long-flowing robes in the Ming dynasty thousands of years ago, if you could be picking cotton in the South, if all those are slaves and none of them have the same experience, and what is slavery? And he had three constituent elements. One was gratuitous violence, which I find to be the most important. Which is to say that the slave's flesh and being is vulnerable in an open way. In other words, the slave is the slave is available to any non-slave entity or formation for any purpose. It could be love, sex. It could be beating and mutilation. That's number one, gratuitous violence. There does not have to be a transgression for the slave to receive um, uh, violent love in the form of, of sex without consent or violent phobia in the s- sense of beating. You don't need to break rules. That's number one, gratuitous violence. The second one is um, natal alienation, which is to say that the slave thinks in his, her, or their mind that they have a grandmother, a grandfather, parents, and, and uh, offspring. But in point of fact, that sense of, of, of institutional integrity of the family that the slave has in their mind does not exist in the minds of anyone else. You're not a relational being. And number three is general dishonor, which is also another very important one, which is to say that you are dishonored in your being, not in your actions. And so what Patterson was arguing was that these are the three elements, uh, Louis Quocant out of, Berkeley might call them homologies, of slavery that exists regardless of the slave experience. So now I, Patterson, have written a definition. But The second point that he makes is that these three elements of non-being, these three elements of social death have to exist in the world. They have to exist in the embodiment of some people in order for communities to exist as communities. In other words, there has to be a formation somewhere for who has no access to natality, who is dishonored without transgression, and for whom violence is a matter of the whims of others, not your performance, in order for a community of free beings with families who can be dishonored because they act poorly, in quotation marks, and, whose, and from whom violence comes to them contingently, that community, to be sane and whole, has to constantly have and recreate another non-community without access to any of these things. And what Patterson says, and this is where we start to diverge, I'll end it here, is that you just can't have a world without that world of social death that, we talk, that I just spoke about. And what we have argued is that this word "black" does not exist prior to the globe considering Africa as the place of slaves. Very interesting point, because it's a it's a big sticking point in the humanities and in general, and uh, and controversial point in black studies in particular. Because what we're saying is show us blackness prior to slaveness, without well, being. Mm. Without being romantic, and I don't think that can be done. So, in other words, blackness then is the quintessential slaveness because there was no prior non slave moment. That's a big difference than all the other slaves Patterson talks about. Number one, and number two, there's a global entity called the human, just like there's a global entity called the worker or the woman, and that global entity called the human can only know itself through its. Socially dead, other. This is the bomb, B A L M, of psychic in- integrity and stability that blackness provides the world.
1: And so, is there no understanding of human prior to that discovery? So, mm. philosophy that predates. Um history that predates that time is somehow qualitatively different
0: well i would use I'm not a historian, so i'm I'm now uh you know walking on a Minnesota lake in April <laughs> hoping it's still frozen but um I will say this um when I say human, I mean it loosely, and by that I mean that whenever people meet. They give each other a kind of existential, um, what what Frantz Fanon calls ontological resistance in the eyes of the other. I'll repeat that. Ontological resistance in the eyes of the other. Um, Sartre might say, I meet a person on the street, that person, you know, whether we're going to love each other or kill each other. In the exchange, that person gives me something, which is uh, the three points, which I, I can remember them: a perspective, a person gives me the capacity in their mind, the capacity to have a perspective, uh, the capacity to um, see myself being seen by someone with perspective, and the capacity mm-hmm. to give someone else the capacity for perspective. What do I mean by perspective, I mean I say to to you, I don't say because I, I, that's a word of volition, but my unconscious grants the encounter, grants you uh, capacities, the capacity to transform endless duration into time, meaning events, the capacity to transform limitless space into place, like place names. So even if I am going to massacre you and try to wipe you out, in that process, I have given you these kinds of, of, of qualities of beingness, which allow you to, which, which bring about ontological resistance between you and me. In other words, if I am the, the white settler and I'm going to kill you from 18 million down to by the 1900s, it was 170,000 Native people. Um, in the process, I'm going to call you a people. I'm going to uh, part of the conquest, part of the ontological resistance, is in the negotiations and the genocide through which I change uh, what you call Oloni land Ola, into California. This is there's war and death, and pestilence, and genocide, but there's also a relay of reciprocity going on. And what I would argue. Is that it is precisely that relay of, of reciprocity. And I'm not the first to argue this, Sadia Hartman in Scenes of Subjection, David Marriott in All Black Men. Uh, that, that relay of reciprocity, that black people cannot infuse the unconscious of the other with ontological resistance. That would be, you know, it would take me 10 weeks to prove that in a seminar we had to get into psychoanalysis, but that's the bedrock claim that um the pre-conscious mind says something when it sees a black person. Oh, that's a person I don't see. I judge, I judge people by the, the content of their, their, their character, not the color of their skin. You know, That's the preconscious mind. The unconscious mind sees the socially dead being. And it is that sight which produces the bedrock foundation for existing.
1: So if you were on uh, the Minnesota thin ice, I'm on even thinner ice here. I actually uh find that part of the argument really clear. And my 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 one remaining question is whether or not prior to Africa being a source of enslaved people, whether we have this concept of humanness. So for example, and again, I don't do ancient Greek thought and I don't do biblical scholarship, but I think some of those scholars believe that there is some concept of humanness. That is threaded through those traditions, and I'm wondering if how, how you place that in your wider sort of meta theory of, of how we should understand anti-black racism as different
0: I'm not sure that I have a really good answer for that um, in, in, in part because I'm not a historian either here uh, since we don't have. Oodles and oodles of time to work this through. I'll I'll tell you the kind of default way in which I would approach it, you know. Um I would approach it personally if I were to go that far back by, by not being quite as wedded to the word human as I may appear to be now in the work. Because that's the the semantics of that can get us thrown off. Sure. What I want to what yeah? What I want to say is is that um, is is that uh, I believe a lot of things happened and were possible between people in what we now call Africa and people in in other places. Um, you know, prior to six twenty five A.D. Um Bernal, I can't remember his first name, but he wrote a book, Black Athena, which um talks to us about the ways in which uh, you know, there are very early, early popes in Constantinople who were black and um key figures in, in Greek society. So I'm I'm not saying that this is like an eternal dynamic. What I am saying is that a, a, a kind of loose gauze of consensus began to be formed by the began to be formed, and this is I take from, from my reading of historians, not from my own historical work. This gauze of consensus of what it meant to be in something which I would loosely call today global civil society and what it means to be out, and that. And, and that being at a meta level doesn't need to have the word human attached to it. It could have another word. But the word and what it is, is being transformed. So what do I mean? Let me be very specific and anecdotal uh, for your listeners. I would say that something remarkable happens to produce Arabic community. Uh, between 625 AD and, and say, um, you know, 1300, like six, six, six to 700 years. And, and what is happening is that the anthropological accoutrement of what it means to be Arab, what it means to have filial capacity to tell the specifics of, of rights and rituals and rights and wrongs inside this thing called the Arab family is growing up. It's evolving, and it is evolving and growing up based upon its own coordinates, positive, as I said before, anthropological accoutrement, but it's also growing up with this absolutely necessary symbiosis between its evolution and the gratuitous destruction and of Black bodies and the lethal consumption both. Uh, flesh-wise and sexually, the lethal consumption of black bodies in this same period. For example, um, the the, pra- the correct practices between men and women in a filial relationship require repression. You can't have sex with whoever you want to, whenever you want to. There, there are repression. repression is not a bad word in psychoanalysis. It's a necessary process to keep the libidinal economy of the unconscious from busting through and breaking the rules of pre-conscious order. But it's always there. And black people, black bodies, served as those points of destination for uh, taboo uh, sexual practices and points of destination for uh, aggressivity that comes naturally inside of an institutional unit where desires are repressed, those things, you know, those those repressed desires and that aggressivity from being made to follow the rules over hundreds of years need to find an outlet, and the slave trade allows for that outlet to be uh, to to happen to be there, so mm-hmm. that there can be stability and peace inside the Arab family. So I I don't I don't so I would say that. That is a development of a being of community. And the development of a being of community over days, over hundreds of years, needs the, um, you can't, if if Patterson is right, then you can't have this without social death running parallel to it.
1: So let me ask you a a question about impulses and um, emotion. You describe your grandmother as an Afro-pessimist, and you talk about Black people being at their best when they are mad at the world. And anger plays a part in the narrative of the book. And I was wondering if I could press you on saying a little bit more about how anger fits in with the overall lens of Afro-pessimism.
0: Yes, but on one condition. Uh, that you'd be a character witness at my sedition trial.
1: Of course. You're <laughs> <What> a joke. <laughs>
0: um, look, I, I, I'm going to cut to the chase so that we don't run out of time. Um, I believe fundamentally that most of what we call politics uh, for Black people becomes a, a uh, another form of anger management. And by that I mean, uh, in the book, I talked about young people who were ready to accept—not uh, not just accept, but ready to engage this dilemma that we exist in our bodies, uh, not as illegal immigrants, not as cantankerous workers uh, r- raging against the, the wage not even as uh, women and non-gender conforming people who are um, railing against uh, the hydraulics, the the traumatic hydraulics of aedipalization. We simply exist as the foil for a certain kind of knowledge. The foil for a certain kind of knowledge. And that knowledge is, what does it mean to be alive? What it means to be alive is to not be slaves what does it mean to be slave for the past 300, 1,300 years? What it means to be, uh, uh, not slave. It means it means to be not black. So I, what, what that means is that whereas other people who I would call forms of degraded humans have, uh, horrible, horrible issues with various paradigms of oppression, um, I mean, I was just in Mexico for medical treatment and saw uh what uh not to mention the fact that it's medical treatment that you can't get blue cost to pay for here, but the fact that that uh what trump's wall is is the kinds of misery that is creating uh just two hours south of where I live on the other side so but that is conceptually coherent, and what happens is that. As a Black person, you're living in a hell which is not conceptually coherent. And so oftentimes in political struggles, um, Black leaders themselves are as afraid of the energy and the affect of, of Black youth. And in the in the chapter, uh, Juice from a Neckbone, I included Black older people, a kind of energy and affect that comes from realizing that Aspects of the world are not against us. It is the world itself that is against us. And so um, I think that what Afro pessimism does, once one, can, once one can make the transition in terms of vernacular from the highly abstract meta theoretical language, and this is what I'm trying to do by storytelling throughout the book make that transition from the highly abstract vernacular to the blood and gut stories. Uh, one begins to know that one has been angry at things far beyond what one can express verbally. And that is precisely what Afro-pessimism gives permission to let unleash, regardless of the consequences. In fact, I would say it goes the other way around, in that Afro-pessimism is the ear that listens to Black people when they speak the unspeakable.
1: So. I think so far, we've talked a lot about the Afro part of Afro-pessimism, and I think that you've explained in a really detailed way how it is that, that interrogating this sort of unspoken assumption about, about Blackness. What about the pessimism part of your book? Because the, the yeah, explain, explain the pessimism part of Afro-pessimism for the audience.
0: Thank you for that because the pessimism uh, comes out of an intellectual relationship to the emancipatory claims of two macro theories that were important to to me and to Jarrett Sexton and to someone like Zakiya Iman Jackson when we were in grad school. In other words, what we were seeing was that if you, you know, turn your head sideways and listen to people uh, on the barricades or on a march or on an op-ed piece, people doing political work, if you listen to them the way you might look at a solar eclipse, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but, <laughs> but if you kind of listen awry, what you're going to hear in the symptoms of the speech are um, an argument Even if the person doesn't have the theoretical background to know that they're making this argument, what you're going to hear is an argument which is saying, this is the, this dot, 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 whatever this is, is the essential nature of suffering. And you're normally going to hear it as being universal. So what that means concretely for your audience is that even if you have a bunch of anarchists and then uh, people from the Communist Party and then, uh, uh, blue dog Democrats and, uh, progressive Democrats all pushing for the same thing, uh, in a coalition. At the, 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 even if there's a lot of theoretical things they can't agree on, one of the basic things that make them a coalition is the sensibility, if it's not a knowledge, that, uh, that the essential nature of suffering is economic exploitation and alienation, or put differently, a divide between the haves and the have-nots. And that's going to be nine times out of 10 at the bedrock of any discursive gesture. Capitalism. Um, For most other people, I'd say less than a third is going to be uh, the essential, what is known in critical theory as inaugural division. Inaugural division will be imagined as gendered. So, um, you get someone like Kaja Silverman in Male Subjectivity at the Margins, and she's saying, I dig Antonio Gramsci and his theory of hegemony. It's just that the Marxists say that the core unethical aspect of a civil society is the divide between the classes. And what they don't understand is that this is really important, but it's inessential. The essential kernel of division, inaugural division of an unjust society is gender. And so there's going to be an argument there as to which forms the grain of sand, right? Well, what we were saying is that we are pessimistic not at the explanatory power of these two things, but at their emancipatory optimism, as if to say, on the feminist side, destroy the art. See the, see the categories of man and woman as artificial, destroy them with the transgender trajectory, destroy the nuclear family, and boom, you're done with Bank of America and the whole shebang. Or if you say from the Marxist side, it's the mode of production that is at the core, destroy the mode of production, destroy the capitalist mode of production, and that's the grain of sand, and then everyone will be free. What we were saying is that this feminist. Agenda, radical as it is, revolutionary as it is, because it will undo the triangulation, mommy, daddy, me, of the heteronormative family, it still cannot account for the suffering of people who have never been allowed to have family ever. And we mean that in the 21st century too. And that for the Marxist side, what we lost in slavery was not essentially an ethical relation. To surplus value, we lost the cosmology of being, and so um, the pessimism is a pessimism of, as Antonio Gramsci might say, a pessimism of the intellect, a pessimism of the bed, the two kind of bedrock meta narratives of political thought as being something that can extend to the black community. As I said in my second book, if the psychoanalytic feminists and the uh, Marxist political theorists would simply hang a shingle outside their door saying no blacks need apply for the emancipatory project, then I'd be okay. But they bring us in, and what that bringing us in does is it crowds out a very rigorous analysis of the ways in which we suffer.
1: I have a question about the grains um, and I think that that last part is so it's such a nice summary of what actually happens and I, I find that part of the book so compelling so do we have to choose what is the basic grain of sand um, where do you stand on intersectionality? can it be that gender and race and class are are inextricably connected and we can't choose the 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 elemental uh, uh Suffering that we we have to see them together, or do you not buy that?
0: Well, I I don't I don't agree with the the level that the question aspires to. I'm, I'm not being insulting, but I'm just I don't know how else to put it. Um, let me put it two, two two ways. H- historically, intersectionality uh, comes on the scene as a set of uh, Conversations and discourses between black feminists trying to understand the particularities of their differences uh, and and um, and gendered identities inside of blackness. I think that with everything that black people do, it gets hijacked to become a problematic for all people. and sometimes I'm seeing graduate students who kind of don't even have the historical uh, crumbs, you know, like back to the house of uh, where this comes from. So that would be my first thing by saying um, intersectionality needs to be rigorously investigated uh, both synchronically as to what work is it doing as a theory and, and, and also diachronically as to say, well, where does this really come from? You know, um, so that'd be one thing. The the second thing is uh I have never pooh pooed the importance of intersectionality. I mean the the last uh forty percent I, I mean, my book my second book, uh is so steeped in an interrogation of of what I call non-black feminist thought, from Shashadri Cook's to uh Kasia Silverman to Judith Butler um and uh, to uh the Italian uh, uh autonomia feminist uh Leopoldino Fortunati. And uh but what I do there is is I stage them, stage their assumptive logics as being irreconcilable with certain strains in black feminism, meaning coming from Hortense Spiller's um and 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 um Cydia Hartman and Joy James in particular, and saying that, you know, so that that here again we have this category called women in both these two elements, whether it's psychoanalytic feminism or Marxist feminism, and they haven't actually been able to think through people who have the genitalia of, of the people that they call women but have never been anything more than cargo in the collective unconscious. They have not accounted for that. They simply assumed that something radically changed, that black women are no longer cargo. That's number one. I, so I would say that the intersectionality is a really important set of, of, of kind of tools of analysis. Important and Inessential, and I'm always trying to divide the line between important and inessential. I don't believe that uh, Afro pessimism, we have described it to you, uh, describes the totality of every Black person's life. I mean, there are Black billionaires, and there are Black starving people, um, there are Black trans people, and there are Black hetero people. But I would say that all those differences are important. And inessential. What I'm say, suggesting is that, that the three elements of social death are the truth, the truth of Black existence, not the totality. Just as I would say that in psychoanalytic feminism, um, a, proper, a properly Oedipalized girl slash woman um, is the truth of Oedipal triangulation. Not the totality of how a girl child or a woman lives their lives, and just like I would say that exploitation is the truth of capitalist domination, but definitely not the totality of how someone lives their lives in the capitalist domination. So the truth. So what do I mean by truth? What I mean by truth is if you were to undo this one little widget, would the world come apart? And so. The desire, the the theoretical desire for that project is very different from the theoretical desire of projects of hybridity. Even projects of hybridity that don't announce themselves as being so are really fundamentally asking themselves a question, how do I, as a non-conforming visual person or non-conforming sexualized person, live in this society? That's not a question you can ask throughout for pessimism. The only question you can answer about for pessimism is what is at the core that holds it together that if you undid it, you'd have the end of the world? Very different desires motivating a different strain of questions.
1: Well, we won't settle uh, whether pulling the thread of uh, gender or race. are. Um, we, we won't settle all the big questions. But let me ask you another one. Which has to do with—I'm uh, tempted, but I'm not going to. It has to do with the book itself. So the conversation we've had has been at a high theory level, and that's not how the book reads. And as as I finished the book, and as I looked at the schedule of events that you were, uh, re- uh, you know, arranging so that we could do the podcast or I could fit in with. I concluded that what you are in a sense right now is a translator and you are translating this high level of theory to a very general audience. The the kind of groups that you were meeting with at libraries, et cetera, were not the kind of conversation that we're having right now. And, And I'm wondering whether you buy that. Are you a translator? Is that what you're trying to do? And what has been the reaction when you are at the Philadelphia Free Public Library, and when you meet with all of the audiences that you are um, uh, at, at all of the places, I was going to say that you're visiting, but you're virtually visiting. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I don't. I, I think that's an
0: apt uh, description. Uh, it's. It sounds better than what I used to say, used car salesman. Uh, so <laughs> yes. Um, you know, I have a desire in my own life, uh, which is to uh, publish more books on stor- that are stories. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't choose Afro pessimism, and if there, and if I wasn't black, and there wasn't anti black racism, and it wasn't in South Africa, and wasn't caught in all these places, I would probably um, be doing a degree in oceanography and uh, writing poetry and short stories about nothing. (laughs) I mean, I can't even think about it. So, um, so.
1: I don't know, Frank. I I think that if you're right, you, you, that's not true. You, you would have been doing oceanography, but your poetry would have nevertheless been saturated with what you could not help but recognize walking through of Minneapolis or Minnesota, wherever, you, where you were from in, in, in Minnesota in the body that you inhabited. I, I, I think that's what you are arguing in the book. Yeah, you
0: have, you're right. I'm being a bit facetious. Um, and I guess what I was trying to say in a kind of humorous way is that, uh, the, the moment I sit down to, to go back to that Kid in his twenties and uh, later in his thirties, early thirties, to to just write fiction, someone calls me to do something else. You know, right. I'm very happy with this book, though. I'm very happy, and I'm happy because it ended up with Liveright, Norton, and Bob Weil, while rather, who it runs the entire imprint of Liveright, uh, has worked with some really high flying. Um, literary prose stylist, as well as um, some of the most major Black uh, political thinkers of the past 20 years, from Robin Kelly to Henry Louis Gates to Appiah, you know, and um, so I was really able to tell him what I wanted to do with this in terms of, of melding these two things together in a free-flowing way, and he was able to run with it. It also helped that it, the marketplace that, you know, I can't get out of capitalism, uh, helped because I guess, you know, right before that, uh, before I pitched this book, Maggie Nelson had written The Argonauts. And so people had been, when I say people, I mean editors and publishers had been kind of primed for this auto theory hybrid gender, uh, genre rather, uh, hybrid genre book. But, uh, I, I think you're right with that translation, Um, a moniker, because what took me by surprise, and I think it took Jared Sexton by surprise, and David Marriott, and Sadia Hartman, was, um, you know, we were students. I was an older 40-something student. Jared was in his 20s. He was in her 20s. And then you had Sadia Hartman and David Marriott, who were at UC Berkeley and UC Santa Cruz, respectively. They were our professors. And um I just thought we were making an intervention into and against the second part, the second gesture of feminism, psychoanalytic feminism and Marxist theory. The second part being prescription, what should be done. We're just making an intervention as to, and uh, then Michael Brown was killed. And um it just kind of, started being read, I don't think the mainstream media or mainstream academia really understands the degree to which these articles and misses, before they were books, were being read on Tumblr and social media by the movement for Black Lives organizations all around the world and by uh, another strain of people called high school and college debaters. So it really, and then when we got the Black Lives Matter movement going, uh, it was as though this push that happens rarely, but when it does happen, it's really beautiful between black activism on the ground and, uh, black political thinking, um, really just set up kind of synergy between us.
1: Okay. So you brought up black lives matter and I want to make sure that readers understand just how pessimistic your pessimism is. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter has a has a has a hopefulness to it that that black people can become full citizens, humans, respected in the United States. I don't think you believe that. I don't you you, you referred to the book as a kind of an autobiography of theory, and I think that's right. Um, but on the other hand, You know, unlike a biography or an autobiography that has an end to its narrative, that has some sort of a resolution, that that is not true here. You don't really, if I understand you properly, you don't see a resolution.
0: No, I I, I see resolution as possible because uh, I don't bring religion into the Black suffering. I believe that this is a constructed... Paradigm of abuse and domination, just like capitalism is. But I don't believe that you can use the tools of language to actually say in any way, shape, or form what that would look like. And that's the paradox of political struggle. Uh, now, I have been to um, Black Lives Matter sessions um, where I've done workshops in LA, uh, in Chicago, Did a really big one. A few years ago in uh, New York, 35 uh, Black Lives Matter Uh, uh, activists were hand selected from the tri state area, uh, New York, uh, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. I did not select them, the people within Black Lives Matter selected them. Met for six hours at the Audubon, what was called the Audubon Ballroom on 168th and Broadway in New York, which is now the uh, El Shabazz Malcolm X Center. Uh, Then there's the Movement for Black Lives. I met with 40 people in London, some were in Black Lives Matter in London, some were just part of the broader, broader movement, I met with a similar group of English and French-speaking Black people at a community center in Montreal, a uh, community center in Vienna of, of Black Lives Matter people in Berlin. So what we do in these workshops is come to an understanding that you cannot use the end of the world as a political destination for mobilizing the Black community in your day-to-day work as cadres in Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives, that would be ridiculous. I say for me to come in, for me to come in here, and you wouldn't have invited me if that were the case. Um, because what you're dealing with as activists on the ground is uh, people who need relief immediately. That looks like the relief that is needed by all kinds of other people. They need the end of police brutality. There's just been a killing in Vienna uh, that looks like Michael Brown. They need um, um, access to to, to housing that isn't overridden with anti-Black clauses and overcrowding because there's just been a building that's burned down uh, as a result of all this in London. Um, And so those are the things that you are in the streets dealing with. But you're dealing with them in the streets. Has opened up a space for political thought that we, just sitting in the academy, could not have opened up on our own. And this is the beauty of doing of doing political work that has that ha- that necessarily has to have as its destination uh, reformist goals. One, so that everyone doesn't get killed the way they killed the Panthers and everyone in Pro, and two. So that ordinary lunch bucket people can say, I can get with that. That's not too radical. I'm not going to get killed doing that. And I do need some relief. I mean, organizing Blackness politically and thinking Black suffering doesn't always have to meet in the same register and in the same way. And the beauty of these movements is the, is the fact that all around the world, they have been able to commandeer uh, physical spaces like community centers, or in London, it was at the Tate Modern Museum in a conference room of all places, and they've been able to draw disparate uh, groups and individuals who are Black from around the city to a place to do hardcore, critical, critical theory called Afro-pessimism that they would never have done before. And so um, the theory doesn't have to show up in the statements of the political uh workers. What a lot of people don't understand is that all the time that Mal uh, sorry, Martin Luther King was preaching nonviolence, there's also recorded conversations that he had in which he's trying to talk about it as being a practical thing in order to get Anglo and Jewish money from the North. You know, so I'm not saying that he wasn't principally like Gandhi, but I'm saying that there are all these other Southern Christian leadership um committees meetings that have another 10 or two of them, number one. And number two, well, he publicly denounced the Deacons for Defense, which were their early Black Panther formation in the 50s and 60s.
1: Yeah, I've written on them.
0: Okay, so you know. I mean, he used them as bodyguards at the same time. Black, yeah. in, black intramural life is very complicated. And so it is not a contradiction to see that afro lives in the psychic reality of Black Lives Matter people as they're motivating for
1: greater inclusion in the project. Now, that's fabulous. Um, I'm so sorry we can't talk forever, but I do want to know what you're working on next or what you're working on now. What What's your next project? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Is it both? Do you have six things going on? Pick one, two.
0: Well, I do have six things going on, but I decided since it's COVID-19, I'm going to do one thing. It took me from March 12th to now, just this morning to kind of figure that out. And I've, I'm going to say this gingerly, I'm working on the novel that was interrupted when I was called to write this book. And I'm very happy it was interrupted because I think I did some things uh, at the level of storytelling, which I'm very happy about. Um, so hopefully this novel will take up everything from for the next, you know, 18 to 24 months. And um, but I'm also getting called a lot to do a lot of talking on critical theory, <laughs> so it's a little. And I often drop oh. my the, the, the registers of my brain to do one or the other, uh, which I have techniques for doing. But um, I'm look, I'm happy about it all. It's this is this is getting traction, so it's, it's good. And in ten years, there there will probably be twenty books. Uh, from graduate students who are Afro-pessimists that will take this field of inquiry beyond where I could have possibly imagined it.
1: Well, there might be more books on Afro-pessimism as a subject, but I will say that this is a, a unique marrying of different techniques that most academics don't have. And I want to recommend the book to listeners in that this is... this. I don't want to say it reads like a novel. It doesn't. It reads... It reads like the, the best moments of a Toni Morrison mixed with the best moments of political theory. And it, it really achieves a lot in that mix, but it's not an easy mix to pull off. And uh, I want to thank you for sharing the book and writing the book and, and coming here to discuss it with us today.
0: Thank you, Susan. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
1: So for our listeners, the book is Afro-Pessimism by Frank Wilderson. And it's from uh, WW Norton. It's available on Norton's website, on your usual Amazon and Barnes & Noble. We're also encouraging people not to forget their shuttered uh, brick-and-mortar bookstores. Frank, do you have one near you that you would like to shout out, that when it reopens, people should buy their books?
0: Well, I live in Southern California, but my heart is in the Berkeley, Oakland, San Francisco area. So. I would say uh, City Lights Book in San Francisco, Marcus Books in Oakland, and Books, Inc. in Berkeley.
1: All right. That's fabulous. And you can buy from those bookstores using uh, bookshop.org, which allows you to select which uh, bookstores you would like things mailed to you by. So even though we are in the midst of a pandemic, you can get your books from and support your local bookstores. Thanks again, Frank. I know you were so busy and you were so gracious about your time. So thank you so much.
0: I I just like to say, if if anyone has any more questions about this, I have a website with lots of readings. And it's just, if you can just remember, my first name is Frank, my middle initial is B, my last name is Wilderson, and there are three I's for Roman numeral three, I, I, I. It's Frank B. Wilderson, I, 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 Frank B. Wilderson III with no spaces, and you'll get right to my website with more information.
1: All right, I'll leave your questions there and thank you so much.
0: Thank you, you take care.